You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Hey, fan people. Aaron Roverman here. I know I'm coming at you at kind of a sad time for comic fans with no new comics on the shelves and many comic stores around the world closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But there are some comics available digitally, and I want to hip you to one of them that I think you're really going to enjoy. It's called Project Impact. It's about a government-sponsored superhero team protecting Canada from superhuman threats. Uh, There's two issues out so far on Comixology. The first concerns the team going up against a team of evil superhumans who have taken over a hydroelectric dam in Niagara Falls. The second issue focuses more on team member Sizem as he works to control his powers, and team leader Pulsar, who gets called to stop a superhuman incident at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. You could probably already tell, but you're going to like this if you like things like Pitiful Human Lizard, North by Scott Sire, uh, Christopher Yao's Major North, because it uses actual locations from across Canada as opposed to just New York, Metropolis, or Gotham City like you see in uh, comics from Marvel and DC. So check it out on Comixology. It's by Alan Roussette, who's the writer, and Stefan Peterson, who's the artist, with a rotating cast of colorists and letterers on each issue. Uh, for the first issue, they have Gary Scott Beatty doing the colors and letters, and then for the second issue, we have Linda Scott Campbell doing the colors, and Richard Lumsden doing the letters. Uh, you can also follow them on social media. They're at Impact Comic on Twitter, and they're at Project Impact Comic on Facebook and Instagram. Check it out on Comixology. It's called Project Impact. Two issues available now, just so you don't get bored during your uh, social distancing practices. And tell them Aaron sent you. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula, where not only can you get your comics, your magic cards, and all the stuff that geeks like you will love, but now that accessible washroom is finally complete. This hits home for me, you guys. I'm a guy who uses a mobility scooter. I know how hard it is sometimes to have washrooms accessible in Toronto. So I'm really proud of Leon for putting his money where his mouth is, completing that accessible washroom, and making equal access for everyone. So go on down to 3456 Young Street, Harry Tarantula, and tell them Aaron sent you. You're listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hey, fan people. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com. Don't forget to subscribe on Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast needs met. Also, don't forget to rate and review our shows or favorite us on Stitcher. Uh, it helps uh, people find us and lets them know that there's a podcast out there that they might be interested in. 
Also, if you like the show that we produce, don't forget that we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash speechbubblepod. You can also follow us on all social media at speechbubblepod. Um, don't forget to, uh, you know, give us your feedback and, and write in to aaron.broverman at gmail.com. And uh, maybe we will uh, read your feedback on the air. Anyway, with me today, we have Chris Sanigan. Chris is the writer of Group of Seven. Uh, you might remember a while back we had Jason Lapidus, who's the artist on Group of Seven, on the show. Uh, Group of Seven is a story about seven uh, legends from Canadian history who were all serving in real life in World War I at the very same time. In this fictional story, they come together to battle a secret plot by the Germans during World War I, hopefully saving Canada and freedom for everyone. Chris, how are you today? Aaron, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, I'm really excited about this because Group of Seven is coming out very soon uh, in graphic novel form, right? The first six issues. That's right. It'll be out. Uh, it's, it's, it's meant to come out uh, in May, be available in May. That's right. That's amazing. That, that's so good. So that's why I wanted to have you on. I guess I know from what Jason has told me that you are an archivist and like a big student of history. I guess I wanted to know how you got into doing that. Into the world of archives? Yeah, like how did you how did you start your uh, your history job? Yeah, so okay, well I actually um, I studied history uh, at university and um, when I graduated I had thought about, I, I did a number of things, um, uh, you know, work, worked in the financial sector for a little bit uh, uh, down, on, down at uh, King and Bay in Toronto, uh, and then I kind of got the itch to go back to school and wanted to work with history or with the products of history and kind of surround myself with that, uh, but I wasn't too interested in going the teaching route, um, at least not explicitly, so I, I kind of found the archives program, and I'd been a, a, I had been a a fan of archives as, as repositories and places of, of primary source um, documentation of, of uh, you know, for the, the events and, uh, and people um, uh, throughout history. So uh, I found the archives program and I went to, it used to be called library school, um, uh, but basically uh, when I went, it was all the kind of cultural industries. So it was libraries, archives, and museums. So I was there for two years in graduate school and then came out and started working for an archives. So what do you do as part of your job? I think a lot of people know, they think they know what archivists do, but what, what do they actually do? So generally uh, an archivist is someone who, who helps manage um, uh, the documentation, uh, his, historical documentation to, to some degree. Uh, primary source records um, are, are the products or the literal products of, of people's activities or corporations or institutions. So it's everything in terms of format-wise. It's everything from, you know, someone's diary entries to architectural plans and maps. Um, photographs are a big one. So anything really, any kind of media type that's documenting, uh, 
million sound and moving images in film that's really documenting human activity uh, uh, is really what what an archivist kind of manages so it looks after so not only does an archivist look to acquire those types of materials like working with the community or working with um, their 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 clients, their stakeholders, to kind of gather that material. Uh, they also then describe that material, so they, they put it in a format so that uh, people can, can access that material uh, and, and conduct their research, whether it's for professional or personal reasons. Um, archives um, uh, on our, our access facilities at, at the heart of it, um, certainly the ones in Canada are, are you know publicly funded, uh, so they're, they're meant to be public spaces where people can go and, and learn about and engage with the, uh, the documentary the, the, the historical artifacts of the past in documentary form um, and then also looking after the, their long-term preservation if if, if, a, if a record finds its way into the archives uh, the, it's a good bet that it's, it's there for a good reason and should be looked after um, in the long term wow that's awesome I ask you that question because um, at some point you made a discovery that's key to like the genesis of the group of seven comics and i just want you to uh walk me through that discovery like how did you figure out that all of these historical figures were you know on the battlefield in world war one at the same time did you already know it was it something that you discovered uh how did this happen yeah so i already kind of job when I was uh, working on projects that were related to the centennial of the First World War, so back in 2013, um, uh, it was just a little bit more in the forefront in terms of, of um, thinking and learning about the First World War, and then I knew of a few folks who, a few of the characters in, in the book who had participated as soldiers, and then kind of went on to do these kind of amazing things, or are known for these kind of really seismic type um, contributions in Canadian and world history, actually. Uh, and so I started looking around, and I found some more characters um, who uh, discovered a few other soldiers who, who kind of had done some, who, who enlisted and signed up and fought and returned to Canada to, to do incredible things. Um, so I kind of had a list of, of names. Uh, and then after that, I started doing a little bit of research into um, uh, just information online that was available and references to records in archival in archives across the country that kind of brought out, fleshed out some of the actual very real relationships that the seven characters had after the war. Um, they kind of, you know, based on, on what they were contributing, a lot of them kind of moved in the same circles. So it was it was kind of looking at um, at those uh, uh, those artifacts of history um, to then um, kind of uh, create narrative devices to kind of put, put these characters back in the First World War when they were, you know, in their early 20s as opposed to maybe um, being in their 40s or being in a time where we kind of more associate them kind of contributing to Canadian history. So what artifacts did you find? So uh, I kind of came across a number of um, primarily references in, in like correspondence, in letters, uh, those kinds of things um, that identified um, uh, actual actual letters sent between the characters, you know, 40 years, 50 years after the war. I'll give you a good example. Um, so two of the characters are, or three of the characters, I say, are Con Smythe, who ended up um, forming the Toronto Beliefs, uh, Lester Peterson, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1956 uh, by uh, instituting the role of the peacekeeper in the United Nations, as well as doing 
Prime Minister uh, of Canada in the 1960s, um, and A.Y. Jackson, who was a member of the group of seven uh, painters. Um, so uh, during the early 1960s, uh, there was a thing called the Great Flag Debate, which was you know moving. You know, Canada was was looking to choose a new national flag. It had been using the red ensign um, as a as a as a as a kind of a placeholder, uh, but you know they felt that the, you know, the government at the time, Pearson's government at the time, certainly felt that there was a need for a national flag, a new type of of, of symbol uh, of, of unity and, and symbolism, and uh, and so uh, during that time, Conspite at the time was you know still working with Trump, and they won a whole bunch of Stanley Cups and all these things, and he, as a veteran of, of the two world wars, the first and the second world war, actually kind of wrote to Pearson. There's there's documented evidence in the archives. Canada in the Pearson papers of, um, of Consmite's writing and saying, you can't do this, I disagree with this, uh, we were soldiers, we fought under the Red Ensign, this is, you know, putting a new flag kind of actually is um, uh, detrimental to the memory and the service of those soldiers, um, which is interesting, so we already have that kind of element, so a bit of conflict there, and then A.Y. Jackson on top of that um, designed his own version of the, uh, of the uh, or for submission for consideration, uh, his own A.Y. Jackson flag, and you can kind of look that up um, if you kind of just kind of type in Google A.Y. Jackson Canada flag, and it's got uh, it's got blue in it, it's got water. Um, anyway, point is, these are all kind of actual materials that exist either in, in the archives uh, or in other repositories that kind of look after this material. So there you have. So so I guess where I'm getting at is we then wrote a scene uh, in, in issue five, and issue five opens with this this kind of culmination of. Pearson talking about the flag debate, Consmite sending letters saying, I don't want this to happen and you should be ashamed of yourself. A.Y. Jackson sending, like, here's my submission. And we used that to then go back into a scene uh, in issue five in the first world war where all three of them were actually together. Right, right, okay. But as far as we know, they weren't, they didn't actually meet each other during World War One, right? As far as we know, yeah. Yeah, I haven't come across anything like that, but what I have come across is their service records. So all their service records have been digitized and are made available online through Library Archives Canada. So you can actually download the military files. Anyone can do this. It's free. It's, it's available to the public. Um, uh, from Library Archives Canada website, they actually ended up um, digitizing all 600,000-plus uh, personnel military files of all the soldiers uh, as well as um, – as well as the, like nurses and anyone kind of involved in that capacity. So hey, there's a shout out if anyone out there has family history or interest in, in their family who may have served in the First World War, go to Library and Archives Canada website and download the military file of your family member. Uh, there's some, it's pr- they're pretty juicy in terms of the information. They're, they're so informationally rich, um, not just. And, and so this is where I found out, you know, that all seven were in Europe at the time um, of uh, of the events of November seven, which is at the Battle of the Ridge in April nineteen seventeen. Right, okay. So we've already talked about uh, Lester B. Pearson, Con Smythe, and A.Y. Jackson, which are like three of the characters. Who are the other uh, four characters? So the other four are John McCrae, Francis Pickamagadow, Norman Bethune, and Frederick Banty. Um, would you like me to talk a little bit about each character? Yes, yes please. Okay, so John McCrae is the protagonist, is the main character in the book. I live in Guelph, Ontario, and that's John McCrae's hometown. McCrae is, is best known um, for writing the poem in Flanders Fields, which is something that certainly in Canada is recited at every Remembrance Day ceremony, November 11th, and, and most school kids grow up you know, knowing that poem. Um, certainly it's, it rings very familiar. Uh, it 
was, uh, it, he wrote it in 1915. Um, he never intended it to be published, but it was in the end. It became kind of a rallying cry. It became a very popular poem during the First World War, and then subsequently following the war, uh, it is, is certainly uh, you know known for its connections to remembrance and commemoration and, um, and, and, uh, and, and the medal, those kinds of pieces, uh, and known the world over. So he's the main character of the book. Uh, he's also older at this time. As I mentioned previously, most of the characters are in their 20s. He's actually in his early 40s. He's, his, he's actually a career um, career soldier in the sense where John McCree uh, was trained in Royal Military College in Kingston, Ontario, and you know, he's in the militia and volunteered in, in what's known now as the South African War, which previously was the War War, um, and in 1914 signs up immediately when Canada is um, uh, Canada declares goes to war as part of the British Empire at the time. So, um, uh, he's, he's the main character. Then um, there's also Francis Pagano, who is uh, the most highly decorated indigenous soldier uh, in Canadian history. Uh, certainly the First World War. He's, he's the most um, successful sniper in, uh, on any side of the First World War. I guess we could say he's the deadliest sniper, but certainly uh, um, he was someone who uh, is renowned for his, uh, his his contributions during the First World War and on the battlefield. And then, and then when he returns to Canada to be an advocate for indigenous rights, That's amazing. Um, my my sister in law lives in Bracebridge, so I've oh, driven sure. uh, through Gravenhurst, uh, and I've seen that sign, and it's it's pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's again, it's it's absolutely incredible, and I think the story behind that is is one of the things um, that uh, helps bring kind of these characters to life. Uh, and then lastly, I'll say Frederick Banty. I mean, uh, what else to say about the man who co-discovered insulin? I'm sure diabetics around the world since then have been praising his name. Uh, won the Nobel Prize for Science uh, in the early 1920s for that discovery uh, as well. So uh, again, you know, these seven characters uh, were all in Europe at the time uh, fighting. You know, they weren't necessarily together. There's no evidence that they're together. So that's where the fiction comes in, and that's where you put them on this mission. Yeah, and I think like in the University of Toronto at the Mars Discovery Center, there's like a huge uh, tribute to uh, Frederick Banting and the discovery oh, yeah. of insulin there, right? Yeah, well, that's where his lab was. That's yeah. like at, at University of Toronto. And, and the other crazy, the crazy thing too is I think so. McCray, Banteen, uh, Bethune um, were all doctors. Uh, I'm trying and did their medical studies at uh, at University of Toronto. In fact, Banteen and Bethune were probably in, crossed over in medical classes in, in the mid-teens in, in, at University of Toronto too, which is pretty pretty wild to think about. Wow. 
So what made you get it? What do you like about history? What made you like switch careers just to get into like a historical career? Yeah, it's certainly, certainly. I mean, it's, it's the only career I've ever really had, um, you know, uh, in terms of pursuing it. I've just always been fascinated by it. I've always loved stories. I've always loved storytelling. The more I think about it, um, originally I think uh, I went into it loving the, um, uh, the, um, the outputs of history, like those kind of artifacts, the documents, looking at older maps, looking at older photographs, kind of being, in red, uh, kind of being amazed by, by the fact that documents have survived and what they kind of tell us about you know whether it's um, the social history at the time or what people were feeling or thinking and i've always been fascinated by that absolutely i've always been history has always been pretty big for me when i was a kid and you know um, and so i pursued it absolutely um, and then when i was able to find it as a professional like work with it uh, finding the archives program that was that was the icing on the cake for me uh, and i've been in it ever since uh, going on you know been, been in this been in that business for over a decade now okay. uh, but you know the more the, at the same time, though, you're also a comic book fan. Uh, what were some of the comics that were really influential uh, growing up for you? You know, what what did you read? What did you collect? Sure, sure. I, I actually didn't. Um, I kind of have weaved in and out of comic books over my time. Uh, it hasn't been um, so. Uh, I, I, there's been just times in my life where I've read them more than others. And as a kid, uh, I've always I've always been interested in comic book properties. You know, I mean, I was always um, you know, storytelling, you know, you know the, the big heroes and that kind of stuff. So I, I was always kind of familiar with and read off and on, you know, things like Batman and Spider-Man. There's a few comics that really stand out for me in my head. Um, I don't know why, but they do, and probably it's imprinted on me just because of the age I was at. But um, the there's a there was a comic book cut out cut out which I think came in conjunction with the release of the first Batman movie, Tim Burton, 1999, called The Untold Legend of Batman, and it was like a little novella. And it was actually, I think, Slim Bean wrote it, uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, Jason actually found a copy. Uh, he has a copy at home. He lent it to me about a year ago, and I was—I just went down memory lane. And I reread that. I reread, reread my copy. Uh, it's just origin, Batman origin stories. That's all it is. But I, for some reason, I remember reading it over summer. Uh, and then moving forward, uh, I, I remember going to my, my local. I lived in Don Mills uh, in Toronto in the summer, and I remember going to local Max Milk and picking up. New Warriors number one. <laughs> I don't Whoa. know why explicitly I remember that. Uh, you know, with Night Thrasher and Navarita and Speedball and Nova and Firestar. Wow, you must uh, have been upset when, like, the New Warriors were sort of maligned as the instigators of the Civil War. Uh, in, oh, right, in the right, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is exactly. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so I had these kind of odds and sods. And then, but I was never really serious. And then in high school, I kind of got a little bit, I started kind of doing some back catalog DC stuff, uh, 80s Teen Titan Marvel stuff. And then I kind of, again, kind of went out of it. And then a lot of it, you know, I had friends in high school introduced me to, you know, beyond the DC Marvel. So I got really into, say, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which I think if, if you're familiar with League and if your listeners are familiar with League, it certainly has played a big part in, in developing the story or the idea uh, behind Seven. Oh. Um, being that it's, you know, a, a, a collection of fictional heroes, of, of literary icons for the League and the Alamores. But uh, again, it's that idea of, of bringing together maybe properties or people that people are aware of, and then kind of sending them on these fantastical missions and having kind of fun with history. I mean, in League's case, it's fun with literary history uh, and, and the literary uh, leanings of what those books are about. 
uh, as opposed to say Canadian history, but it's still kind of that same principle. Right. When I when I read it, I definitely was thinking shades of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen yeah. for sure. Like that that was uh, definitely something that uh, that definitely came to mind. Um, when you were making the discovery about how all of these historical figures, you know, uh, Francis Pickham McAvo, uh, Colin Smythe, A. Y. Jackson, Lester B. Pearson, uh, Frederick Banting, Norman Bethune, when they were, when you discovered that they were sort of all in Europe around the same time fighting World War One, um, did you always think that your idea was going to be a comic, like? How did you come to, I want to make a comic of this? I think, um, good question. I think really it came down to just, um, it was a format that I was, as I said, kind of ebbed and flowed with. And it was currently, I was reading a lot of comics at the time. Uh, you know, I've been, I've been lucky, enough to be, lucky enough to be friends with Jason for, uh, oh gosh, now we're coming up on two decades in a couple of years, I think. And, uh, and he's always been feeding me excellent comic books. He has, he has excellent taste and he and I have always been, back and forth about comic book storytelling and what we'd like to see, what we didn't like. Amy Feeney, you know, the Bendis run on Daredevil, which I have with Alex Boulevard, and all those kinds of pieces, and he filling me in. And I think I probably was just reading a lot of the time, uh, you know, through him. Um, and then, uh, and I just thought, like, uh, I kind of was thinking, um, I, I kind of wrote down all these ideas. I was commuting into, commuting into Toronto for work on the GO train, and I'd have time in the morning and at, at night, and i just kind of sit on my phone and and I just thought of like, how, if these characters were together, what's the, what, how much, fun, how, what's the most amount of fun I would have engaging with that story? And I think, you know, if it wasn't like a Expendables like type movie, it certainly was a comic book. Um, and then having those, uh, and again going back to being influenced by things like *Leave Me Short Gentlemen*, seeing how that could play out in a comic book medium. Yeah, I mean, it sort of lends itself to some, you know, secret government mission. You know the the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen sort of archetype, where all these literary figures are sent on a on a mission that nobody knows about to like save save the world type of thing, and this totally lends itself to that. Um, I wanted to ask you too, like, you know, obviously Jason is a big part of this. He is your artist. He's probably you know a lot of the inspiration for this because he's been you know feeding you comics and you know you've bonded over comics and that sort of thing. But how did you guys meet originally, and how did you discover his artistic talent? So we've known each other since our girlfriends at the time, who both became our wives, so that worked out. Um, uh, basically, we're like, our boyfriend should be, this is back at university, um, this is again almost two decades ago, um, and basically we met, and like any classic kind of double date, you know, I suppose the, the boyfriends were kind of like, well, I hope I get along with this guy, I'm not sure what he's talking about. Um, but we started talking immediately about, you know, things that we, I don't know, we just came up, we just started talking about comics, and we started talking about how we both loved the Bruce Timm Batman animated series, and then the Superman, the Justice League, and how we just loved so much everything about it, the storytelling, the design, the art, and we, 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 we also were, had a lot of other things in common, too, music and sports, and we're both hockey fans, and we're both music fans, so it, it was not hard to find common ground after that first meeting, and it just, it just kind of, you know, it's grown since then. Um, so I think when it comes to like working with Jason and, and, and staying and, and you know kind of suggesting that this idea to him, uh, you know we were we were hanging out, our kids were playing in the park, and uh, our kids are roughly around the same age, and they were visiting us here in Guelph, and, and I said I have this idea, and I know that you know Jason has always doodled 
I know he's taught art. I, I, I knew that point he never published art. He also knew at that point that I'd never published fiction. I had written for some, you know, some newspapers and I'd written some kind of academic pieces, but, but never anything like this. And so I kind of pitched him the idea, the, the elevator pitch. I told him the characters and he was like, this guy, this guy. And then I said, here's my title, which is, you know, connects it all to real Canadian at Grimmie 7. And he was like, I'm in, let's do this. And I said, okay, uh, I'm going to try. And so it really comes from a, I'd love to say it was more planned than it was, but it was a lot more about kind of happenstance and let's see if we can do this. And so I wrote a prologue uh, and I sent it to him and he said, I can work with this. I like this. And he started sending character sketches. And then I started, I wrote a, I wrote a manuscript over a year of six issues. And then we, and then I'm sure there's been 10,000 texts between us in the last few years about back and forth. And, and you know, so Jason's been involved since the beginning in terms of moving the, moving it forward. Um, and I, I hadn't thought of any other artist. I hadn't thought of bringing it anywhere else. It was just a, hey, here's an idea. What do you think? And maybe we were, maybe, maybe we were both just looking for a, pro- a project. I'm not sure. I don't know what the, what the genesis of that is, but uh, it's, it's certainly, we pushed each other and, and now we're on the brink of, you know, the, the, the graphic novel coming out and then issue seven coming. Yeah, I mean, what do you like about Jason's art? What, like, why do you think he's, like, the perfect artist for this? Well, I think, I mean, at the beginning, I wasn't sure, but, I mean, I just knew he could draw. I liked what he drew. I had no real critique of his style or really any art style in general. I just knew what I liked about art I had seen in comic books. Uh, that's That's fairly subjective. Um, obviously, but uh, I think when I when he started sending me characters, you know, he, he his art is very much in the in the classic and it appears you know cartoonist vibe if, if that's what makes sense to anybody out there. Where um, you know the, the the characters have a the characters his characters have, have always had a um, a look and feel about uh, that doesn't match up with current comic books and been out of time, which I've always loved. It certainly fits the seven comic book to a T in terms of uh, when I think of the art being produced by um, you know the, 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 on the uh, you know whether it's Marvel or DC and, uh, the stuff I like I like but I could never see like a Jim Lee approach to to, uh, to group of seven um, you know I mean but it's really funny because when Jason started doing the art like I think one of his first sketches for Con Smythe he was so bulked up which is really funny and we're just kind of going back and, and then we started realizing that no we need to like the art needs to be reflective experiences that these people were in if we're going to really connect on that level so you know jason started you know drawing them a little more spell you know these guys have been fighting for three years they're probably not sleeping very well you know what i mean like they, they probably aren't at the peak of nutritional health they're certainly not you know they're certainly not over muscled or couches everywhere not not to take any shots at any, any artists but certainly um, it just didn't fit and so he came up with this this approach and, and it's it's, it's worked so so well with the content in the time period that I couldn't have asked for anything better. Yeah, it, it looks like, you know, a little bit like how someone would have illustrated it around that time. Like, you know, it's very, like, grayscale. It's very kind of minimalist, but also, you know, very historically accurate at the same time. It yeah. feels like its own artifact, I, I, yeah. I would say. Exactly. That's a really good and it, and it, I actually, We actually took it to, um, uh, we've been lucky enough to take the comic book to a number of schools, both elementary and high school, and talk about the comic and as, as inspiration for history or art or graphic literacy or whatever it happens to be. And, 
and we took it to my kid's school uh, because they found out about uh, we got some early press locally here in Guelph about it because you can't if you're gonna project it, project on John McRae he's, he's Guelph's you know most famous famous uh, scion so uh, we got some nice local press and, and so the school contacted us and said can you come talk to the kids it was during the year of it was a couple years ago so it was Canada 150 so they were looking for ways to connect kids with the Indian experience I remember one five to sixes and a couple kids one kid said like i really like the art and the i like the black and white because it, it fits world war one like to them their image of that time period of 100 years ago fit with the comic book that was in front of them and to and then like so if a, if a 13 year old kid gets it then i think we nailed it yeah that, that's pretty awesome that's pretty good and i know that jason said that like you know part of the reason that they're dressed the way they are dressed is so that he could you know cheat a little bit and he didn't really have to uh, you know, come up against those uh, those hi- history files who who are so like you know like this isn't accurate <laughs> like they didn't wear these <laughs> these uh, totally. clothing yeah, during the time period. It's, awesome. it's funny you mention that because during the early days, you know, we were putting pages online. You know, you ever wish we had dresses? You were still doing that, but we were putting some pages online. And uh, I had I had a friend reach out who had re- who had put who had reposted the pages on Reddit, and someone on Reddit emailed this friend who then got the question to me and the question was what are they wearing and why and we i responded and made, you know the idea was that they're kind of wearing dyed hockey sweaters from it like you know like they've taken like the wool hockey sweater they're kind of wearing like turtlenecky type you know type uniforms and so like oh well you know what are you gonna do well you're on the western front okay well you know it's cold it's, it's april so you want to be a little bulky but you're gonna have to make it black so you can you know sneak around a bit and be stealth like and so so we, we kind of love the wool sweaters that were probably super itchy. The uniforms at the time were super itchy and could fit anybody. So we kind of went with that. And then we provided that response. I provided that response. And the person was just like, oh, that makes total sense. Of course. <laughs> I was like, yeah, great. Like, I know it's not going to fit everybody. There's probably people kind of like they say about it. But, you know, like there is intention behind the decisions we make. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. I want to know too, though, how do you balance, like you have all these historical components. You have these real people but the story itself, if people read it, when you discover like what the mission is and you know what the group of seven actually discovers that the Germans are doing, is pretty like fantastical. It reminds me of sort of a like those action movies, like The Expendables or that sort of thing. How do you balance you know the the history of it and the very sort of highbrow parts of the story with sort of the like you know, B-movie horror, sci-fi, action movie elements of the story as well, like the, the fantasy versus the reality kind of thing. I think the, I mean, I think that's what makes it such a fun project, actually, is it, 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 it speaks to so many of the things that we love and sort of, I love where it's, you know, this very uh, formalized, um, you, know, you know, real people, real events, um, or at least, you know, real places, those kinds of things, and then, and then playing with the fantastical, putting them in situations that, like, are obviously fictional, um, and playing, and, and playing in the, in the trenches of history, um, so I think that it, it, it's resonated in terms of having that blend, because, you know, history, I think you, some folks may have traditionally seen history as, or, or students, maybe as, as, uh, not as interested in it but you know at the end of the day when you when you connect people to various elements everyone's interested in history 
regardless of whether you think you studied in school or not, or you like the way it's taught or not, everyone's interested in some kind of history. It's just fascinating. And when you kind of add it as a playground to then add these elements in, it makes it so much fun. And it then connects, I think, or can connect even more. So certainly the response that we've always been, the main goal has been like telling a great story. So we, we try to find that balance between the real and the fictional. Um, what happens is, you know, the fictional is, it's not as difficult to come up with like the fictional elements, um, you know, the, the fantastical nature, the enemies, you know, the monsters, the secret laboratories, all that kind of stuff. Because um, that kind of, um, there are archetypes of that in, 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 in media that we already love. But when you put on the layer of, of the history where, well, that person was there, or this is in 1917, and that actually, you know, this event somewhat took place or was happening down the road, it just gives it this other level of, of impact and I think kind of emotional resonance that I think, you know, for, for fans of the book has really connected. Yeah, that, that's really amazing. And I mean, these guys are, these guys are warriors, like, you know, like Con Smythe, even though he is sort of one of the founders of the Maple Leafs in the NHL, like he's no slouch in terms of uh, with the fisticuffs. So there's a lot of that going on. Yeah, You've got, yeah. you know, Francis Pekka who's like one of the greatest snipers in Canadian history of all time. So what kind of response have you gotten uh, to this book? Because I know, you know, some people might think that like Canadian history is pretty lame, but uh, you know, I think, you know, you, you found the right combination here. So, so what kind of feedback have you gotten? I said kind of in the early early days we had put some stuff online and we got some local press like we even did we, we did some, we did an interview on on cbc we did two interviews two interviews on cbc radio and sometimes i, I you know i can't help myself i go read the comments uh and and for the for the most part they're overwhelmingly positive people see this as a vehicle um either they enjoy the story and think it's fun which is great because i want like i have fun with these characters i want it to be fun um uh, or they see it as a vehicle, maybe for uh, for uh, bringing um, you know these the stories of these, or the, you know to, to you know the uh, the real history behind it um, to maybe to to younger younger people who might not be interested or not be connected to some of these stories or events or people um, for whatever reason. And so the comic book medium uh, and, and the fun way that we do it is a really good balance. Um, generally, yeah, there, there was some, you know, oh, I can't believe this, you know, John McCrae wasn't a, uh, a soldier, he was a doctor, and that's very true, uh, but I also kind of like the idea, or, or one of the genesis of the idea is that, you know, uh, we remember these seven characters for doing these incredible things, whether it's, you know, co-discovering insulin, or whether it's writing poetry, or whether, but they're all non-military, and yet, you know, at the time, they all signed up, they were all trained. They all, you know, we don't talk about it, but I don't know, probably some of them got their hands dirty or ended up with life on their hands in some capacity. So, like, you know, it was extraordinary times. And I think, I don't I don't think we should, I'm not saying that we're celebrating that, but what I, I am suggesting is that there's many facets to these people's lives. And, like, when I think of Joel McRae, he's absolutely known for, for this poetry. And it's kind of, which, which is really about, it's very somber. It's almost about the, it is about the futility of, and military conflict, or at least it's been taken that way, it's evolved that way, but you know, this is a guy who spent his whole life in the military. Like, his whole life, you know? And, like, we, we, we never talk about that. And I think 
elements of their characters and then you know bring them forward a bit and then play around for a little bit you know i think really just kind of enriches our understanding of of these people and i think like anything we all have so much complexity to our characters uh, our own personalities um and we, we, we tend to fixate on one especially in history we tend to fixate on on one element this person was a great leader this person was a terrible person this person whatever it happens to be and in this case i i really liked bringing forward the idea that actually you know there are different sides and different facets to these their lives um and so you know i, I think again that's another another way that it, it has resonated is that it, it it presents a different picture it's it's not meant to be a deconstruction of people's characteristics or personalities or an in-depth uh, critique it's just meant to show a different side or a side that people may not have been aware of to a degree obviously it's fiction Night, do you think you know that there's room for this story to resonate beyond our borders like in the u.s or other countries because i know you're you're putting together the collected edition now and this is the first opportunity people have to like read all the issues together and it's a lot easier way to like distribute the comic than than the you know floppy single issues where people have to sort of hunt and find them and it gives you an opportunity to send the graphic novel other places so do you think that uh you know people in the u.s and that sort of thing will respond to this in the same way oh i certainly hope so i mean there's there's a lot of ways you can take it and, and i think um again as i mentioned earlier like the it's really about storytelling and we just wanted to put a great story regardless of nationality so if, it, it obviously is full of references to canadiana and it's got a love of canada in it but we don't have you know it's not it's not dripping in maple leaves or anything Right? Like it's, it's if you didn't know who these characters were, which is fine. It's a World War One adventure story, at the at the at the very heart of it. Like there's not, you know, it's a secret mission, uh, save the day, punch up, daring do, all those kinds of things, one liners. Um, you know, it it, it has, it has those elements of of Canadian and references those pieces. If you didn't know those pieces, you can still, I would hope, you can still very much enjoy it as a straight up action adventure series. And we've certainly had some inroads in, like, for example, the United States. Obviously, you know, the overall majority of our response has been, and, and, and sales and, and things have been in Canada, and certainly in southwestern Ontario where we are. But, you know, we sold, we sell occasional, we, we've sold um, series to Louisiana and California and oh, Salt Lake City and, and, and all over the place. And, and we, were, we, were even, we were even carried by a, a shop in physically carried by shop in Virginia. Um, so we've kind of started making these small little inroads into places like the States. Um, and, and the really funny thing is I always, whenever we get an order from, you know, again, kind of over, you know, south of the border, I always ask, um, you know, how did you hear about us? Because I'm really curious. Because again, I can understand how you might have heard about us in Canada. You know, we've, we've done some, some media, we were, we're at shows, you know, it's not too hard. Um, but you know, for the States, you know, City, how how did you get to hear about us? And a lot of times, people say, "Well, I either came across on social media, it sounded cool, sounded interesting," or some people say, "Oh, I just love Canadian things. They're American. They just love Canadian things." But again, uh, I think that speaks to the idea that like it's just hopefully a good story, and they go, oh, "That sounds like a fun, cool story." Um, and uh, and so you know they, they kind of jump on board. And we've also tailored our language we talk about. I mean, a lot of people 
to different audiences. Like, for example, when you say First World War, that terminology, First World War, actually doesn't resonate in the United States. And there it's called World War One. And I know it's a matter of semantics, but actually what it, what it means is like different, different areas of the world call things differently, right? I mean, First World War is very much a Canadian, you know, former British Empire, current Commonwealth type um, term. And World War One is, 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 is absolutely American. Uh, same with the Second World War and World War II, for sure. Um, they're popular in, in those spaces. So when we talk about the book to people in the States, we call it World War I. Like, it's, it's, what's carried, for example, it's carried on a digital platform called SpinWiz, which is a, out of, uh, which is a, an American platform for um, indie uh, comic book creators. And, and, and this, you know, we ended up having a relationship with this, this, this startup that, and, um, that got on board with them. And so all the, the language is slightly changed. It's not first world war, it's world war one. It's it mentions a little bit less of of Canada and more about uh, action adventure. Like you know what I mean? Like because you need to kind of reach out to those audiences and make sense to those audiences. Right, right. Yeah. And would you? you no, go ahead, sir. Would you like full like if you said first world war to like an American, would they fully not know what you're talking about? Very, it's very possible. We we got a really good um, we got a really good sense of it. One time we did a show at we did Niagara Falls Comic Con last year, and Niagara Falls is a border town, right? So what we, I, it didn't even dawn on either of us that um, that half the half the clientele would be American, right? Like you know we do shows in Toronto and wherever else, and you know it's, it's mostly you know it's mostly locals, right? And but Niagara Falls had a real healthy contingent of Americans, which makes total sense. And so we had people we, we I do the pitch and people would kind of like cock an eyebrow and I'd be like, hey, wait a minute, are you Canadian? Are you American? And then we kind of go from there. Like, uh, it was really interesting. Or we had people wanting to, the other one is funny, we had people wanting to pay us in, like, American money, which is, like, great, but we didn't carry a float for change of American bills, which, you know, maybe next time we do a show closer to America, we would. Um, so it was just those kinds of tweaks, right? I mean, but you get those insights from going and, and, and absorbing yourself in those kinds of events. Um, and then you kind of learn, right? And I think for Jason and I, it's always been about, aside from, having fun and putting out great stories it's been a real learning curve on all levels whether it's, it's comic or marketing or whatever it happens to be and so we, we we really you know we're lifelong learners both of us and we really we really champion learning and so uh, uh for us it's been great kind of having these insights that we can improve our product and speaking of feedback from the u.s i mean jason sent in the comic i know to uh, cartoonist kayfabe which is like this really popular uh youtube channel uh, that looks at comics and looks at Wizard Magazine and does like commentary and that sort of thing. It's run by uh, artist Jim Rugg, who does Street Angel and Aphrodisiac, and Ed Piscor, who does X-Men Grand Design, and uh, Hip Hop Family Tree. And your comic was like the first thing that they put on uh, one of their early mailbags in the, you know, at the beginning of April. It was like the thing that opened the video. I mean, how thrilling was that? And I know uh, Ed had some feedback on uh, on Jason's lettering. I mean, what what did you think of that? It was it was awesome. It was like I mean, I gotta be honest with you. It was, it was probably way more thrilling for Jay. He's a he's a massive fan, and and, and I'm learning more about Cartoonist Kayfabe. Like honestly, a year ago, I didn't know that I didn't know the show, and uh, and I, but then, but at more of the shows and more of the kind of people we talk about it and comic scene, they, you know, especially cartoonists and illustrators, and they really love it. Obviously, Jim Rugg and, and his group of, you know, cartoonists and illustrators. So, um, uh, you, to have it, 
to see it and then to have it like spoken of by for like two minutes uh, by you know these 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 guys who are you know really well respected and have done incredible work and are, are, are renowned for what they do uh, was was a real thrill um, and uh, we've had a couple of people reach out and order copies of the book from it um, which is oh, I saw I saw kind of escaping like oh, that's, that's amazing so and the system does work if you if you promote it in that way we will get some some sales but um, it was awesome I'm sure it was doubly thrilling for Jason. Yeah, And with the collected edition of the first six issues, uh, which I have, by the way, and I, and I think I'm on the back of the of the graphic novel, like my my endorsement is there, which is a thrill for me. So, and and obviously, you you, you know, people listening to this will know that if it has my seal of approval, they definitely have to go check it out. But um, I wanted to talk about what's next after this uh, graphic novel comes out. I know that on on Jason's episode he teased something called the Peregrines. What what is that? Yeah. So yeah. Well, thank, first of all, hey, thanks so much for, for adding your voice to the book and, and championing the book. I, we really appreciate it, man. So thank you so much. Um, uh, yeah, Peregrines is the uh, is the next next story book storyline that we're we're doing under the Group of Seven banner. It exists in the same universe. In fact, the story takes place I think a few months after the events of Group Seven. Um, so we just kind of um, started kicking around uh, some more story ideas and, uh, and started doing it again, looking into the research uh, and basically landed or started knowing more about, um, uh, started thinking more about the Canadian Army nurses, actually, who were on the front lines and started learning more about their contributions, uh, aside from what we already kind of recognized that what they were, were doing, which is, you know, basically taking care of the soldiers and, and, and you know, providing care. Um, but then all these kind of, I started, you know, being the archivist, I started going down the research hole and trying to find out more about these, these women. And it turns out that all these other amazing things are happening with them at the time. So one, they're the only commissioned, they're the only officers who are women in the first world war, like of any army, like they're, they're, they're commissioned officers, the, the nursing sisters. So they hold rank, uh, they get paid better than, you know, because they hold rank. Uh, and, uh, and they can even vote, which is incredible as part of the military before, before women, you know, uh, get the vote in Canada more widely, they're one of the early, earlier groups who have the ability, which is incredible. So we already have this, like, this really cool, amazing group of, of, of women that are, uh, are already kind of held in a higher regard in some respect. Um, and so then we kind of have played around with that idea because the group of seven is a male dominated book. And we thought, well, how best to kind of incorporate this and not do it in, in a token way, but kind of to pay, pay uh, respect to their, their amazing contribution and also play around the fact, again, as I mentioned, that they're already this kind of like uh, elite group, uh, to, to put it bluntly. So um, Peregrines is, is the result. Uh, as I said, it picks up after the events of Group 7. And it basically is, you know, the Peregrines are an, an all-female secret organization that has been protecting Canada the Dominion of Canada from the unknown and the unbelievable since Confederation. So that's the pitch. That's the elevator pitch. Um, and what it allows us to do 
is there's a there's a pseudo reality to Group of Seven. Like they're soldiers, they don't have superpowers, they have a little bit of extra tech, but you know it's it's it, you know still a lot of fisticuffs and that kind of stuff. With Peregrines, it's now we can kind of expand that box. So they have you know it's a little more. It's, if if, if um, Group of Seven is more like a dirty dozen or Expendables, with Peregrines we can lean a little more towards say like James Bond or Steampunk or other kind of fantastical type type events or type uh, influences. So that is on its way. Issue seven, uh, or sorry, group seven, number seven, which would be Peregrine's Part One. Um, yeah, that'll come out. You know, hopefully sooner rather than later after the graphic novel comes out in May. Wow! And then after that, I mean, are you going to return to the original cast of Group of Seven? I know that, like, you know, the First World War is a is a finite amount of time. You know, some of the characters don't make it out, notably. Uh, John McRae. So, how do you how do you return to those characters, even if you have plans to, uh, you know, without violating what actually happened in in history? Yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, I love these characters a lot, and I'm not done with them in terms of stories. Um, and I have some already some story ideas in mind to to move it forward. Um, in Peregrines, keeping Peregrines in the same universe allows us to do the kind of crossover type references to different people or, or bring characters forward into different books who maybe not as a team, but maybe they're as an individual or maybe they can connect up or whatever happens to be. But absolutely, um, yeah, John McCray is the only one who doesn't return from the war, so six do. Um, and so absolutely there is story fodder there for their either further adventures or even connecting to, say, the Second World War in some capacity, um, because actually, you know, uh, a number of them had defined military roles in the Second World War, too, right? Consulite enlisted, went back overseas. Frederick Banting um, was, a, a, was a scientist and was designing prototype G-Force unit suits for pilots in the Second World War. Uh, so there's, like, a whole bunch of other types of kind of uh, connections we can make during those time periods. And then when you expand the time period, suddenly, oh, well, you've got so much to work with in terms of story. Um, so absolutely. Uh, also, I'll say this, you know, we've peppered some um, some mystery in Group of Seven. Um, it ends in a, in a way that, that um, suggests that perhaps um, there are other things at play. And those are going to be fleshed out a little more in Peregrine. So there is there has to be some kind of uh, resolution to some of these pieces. So that's definitely, you know, hopefully covered. That's awesome. Cool. So, uh, where can people find this graphic novel? Because you know that's why I wanted to have you on. Because I wanted to, you know, hype this book that's that's coming out. Uh, where can people get it? Um, get it at www.groupofsevencomics.com or not .ca, I should say. Um, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's there. It's available for order now. As I said, um, it'll be available for shipping likely sometime in May. That's what we're aiming for. That's what we're kind of tracking towards uh you can also order the individual comics at, at our website um and actually uh at the moment all six issues are available for free digitally at our website so you can actually go to the website and download digital copies of six issues for free um if you're looking to kind of learn more about the comic or to kind of get a taste of it uh physically you know we'd love to get it in stores um I'm not sure what that framework looks like in our current climate, at least for the immediate future. Um, however, you know, we, let's let's say that that uh, we return to normal in some capacity, uh, and uh, so then we'll be in stores all over 
uh, Southwestern Ontario, you know, whether it's um, Silver Snail or Sidekick, Pepper Guy like Toronto or Dragon Comics as well, uh, or a number of places as well. So uh, we'll look to get that out. We'll look to get the book out in as many places, physical locations as we can across the country and hopefully beyond. Wow. And so the website is group and the number seven comics.ca? That's, right. that's right. Group of and then, yeah, that's right. Then the number seven comics.ca. Okay, group of and, number seven comics.ca. That's awesome. Yep. So and check that. All over, and that's also our handle on social media, group seven comics on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Has, has it been difficult to promote a new release in light of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic? How has that affected uh, you guys? Well, it certainly impacted our ability to talk to people face-to-face and to be in shows. Like a number of, of creators, um, we had a number of shows lined up in March and April and had to cancel them in May. So everything's canceled, I suppose. Uh, so that would have been... Um, absolutely time to, you know, collect pre-orders or to, to talk to people about the book or to get some, you know, promote it that way. So it's been tough. We've only been able to really do it through social media. We've certainly had uh, champions and advocates like Cartoonist Cafe talk about the book or other places like The Dragon and Guelph has featured us in their, they have like a weekly Facebook um, live chats and they featured the book. So we've had that happen um, kind of virtually, but I think, yeah, we, we definitely suffer from not being at shows. The shows are where we meet almost everybody, where we absolutely make the most amount of sales of our product, uh, and are able to kind of push the book, uh, or at least, um, you know, share share it. Um, so I, I, it's been difficult that way. Uh, at the same time, we did put out a pre-order back in February, um, and uh, as of last week, we closed the pre-order, um, because pre-order came in all these kind of exclusive bits. Um, and, uh, you know, basically through pre-order sales made enough to cover the print run, which is incredible. Um, and really, we're really thankful and amazed at that. So, yeah, it's definitely hit us as, as it's hit everybody, certainly um, in, in the, from a comics perspective. Uh, but, you know, again, as things loosen up, um, as restrictions will loosen up, you know, hopefully at that point, maybe we can get it stuff in, in storage and, uh, and then hopefully, you know, a show or two, you know, later this summer, early fall, or, you know, fingers crossed for the best, right? Yeah, I, like, I, I really hope. I mean, the good thing about this being fully Canadian is, you know, maybe you can apply for grants and do stuff like that for further issues of the comic and that kind of thing. Um, where can people find you on social media if they want to connect, if they want to follow you as you create Peregrines? Uh, you know, where can people find you? Yeah, we're at, at Group of Seven. It's the number seven in comics on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And, uh, you know, we, we update each channel. Um, so yeah, please reach out. We, we, we always love talking to people. In fact, you know, we just even got something in the mail the other day where, where someone had had pre-ordered the comic and and, uh, and then sent us an old comic that that he had he had used to teach Canadian history, which was produced by the Hudson's Bay Company back in the early '90s uh, to honor their anniversary. So you know, we love interacting with people and sharing that kind of stuff. We just eat it up. So please get in touch. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we'd love to have you back when uh, when Peregrine's launches or, you know, to just to check in on the actual group of seven. And uh, we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. Thanks so much, Aaron. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com.
Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, and features audio editing from Armin Zoberi. It has announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward, with graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.